Every team, every topic, everywhere, this is Believe. Okay, let me give you the rundown on this week's episode. You're going to hear Booger McFarlane talk about Joe Burrows, his expectations on what he's going to do for the Cincinnati Bengals. Also talk about COVID-19 and collegiate football. I know they planning on starting, but will they ever finish? Last but not least, a lot of NFL teams had COVID-19 scares. What does this do for the NFL? Did it actually help because it wasn't? Or does it actually hurt them because it wasn't? Stay tuned. Playoffs? Playoffs? Did somebody say playoffs? The NBA, MLB, NHL are in full swing, and our partners at Bet Online have you covered. Listen, after I saw the NBA game last night and I saw the Lake Show, man, I know where I'm putting my money at. So take full advantage of sports being back and get into action with hundreds of odds, futures, and props for you to bet on. And there is always an online casino as well. It never closes. Trust me. I know. So head to betonline.ag today and sign up to receive your welcome bonus on your first deposit. Again, that's betonline.ag and sign up today. BetOnline, your online sportsbook experts. Let's go behind the mask. Welcome back to another edition of the Behind the Mask podcast. I am your host, Takeo Spikes, joined alongside by my co-host, better known as the... Your favorite plus-size model, Tucson Reyes, in the building. Two, it's always a pleasure to see you, but I really appreciate what this next guest is going to bring to the table. Like, he, he's one of my all-time favorites, man. And, and plus, from my understanding, y'all got a little history with each other, had a little cup of coffee with each other in the great state of Florida, but we'll get into that later. But without further ado, we're going to bring in our guest, two-time Super Bowl champ, ESPN NFL analyst, and also all everything inside of the studio. Give it up for Booger McFarlane. <laughs> <laughs> Bro, what's, what's happening, bro? Man, life is good, fellas. How y'all doing? Man, everything is uh, good, man. We slow motion, but in motion, man. Staying quarantined, staying out of the way. Looking forward to a football season and especially college football, man. You know, um, as much as I hate to give you the credit, like you LSU Tigers, they won last year, finally. <laughs> finally, damn one. Finally. You know what? Hey, so, so Spike, check this out. And, and I think I texted you. I, you know, during this whole pandemic, we all been home watching TV. And, and it's, it's interesting, interesting you bring up LSU because I texted you. I was watching LSU's game where we played against each other. I believe it was 1996 Seven. or 97. Seven, yeah. And, and, and maybe the best running back I've ever seen, Cecil Collins. Hey, two times. Yeah. Cecil Collins ran over Spikes. He ran hey, he ran over Spikes and Martavius Houston all night long. We gotta pull the tape for that one. No, we don't pull the tape. <laughs> we don't pull the tape, bro. Listen, and I knew you was gonna bring that up. So too, I had to make sure I came prepared. Cecil Collins that night. Unbelievable yeah. night in LSU. Night game. Bro, the best of the best. You know, too. Yeah. You played yeah. at, at Ole Miss SEC. So 
90, I look back at the stat line on that, 92 degrees at a nighttime game. I want to say it was on ESPN. Yeah. Then he had over two, 232 yards rushing, 8.6 yards per carry. I, I, I can't lie. He got off. But y'all still <laughs> took that L, though. <laughs> we did. We did. Damian, hey, Damian Craig was, man, that dude was, uh, not only was he underrated, he was unbelievable that night, man. He was, man. Had over 300 yards passing, two touchdowns. And I tell people still to this day, Book, like Craig was so much ahead of his time. Right. And, and, and and you just see the lack of – I know he went to Carolina, but he was one of my favorite leaders, best leaders of all time whenever I entered into a locker room, for sure, on that, bro. Yeah, if you talk about being like ahead of his time, imagine Charlie Ward – Damian Craig, imagine those guys in today's football, like in today's NFL. Those guys would be like the modern day versions of Lamar and Kyler Murray, mm-hmm. those dual threat guys. Uh, I had to play against those guys two ton and they're 300 pounds. If you ever go back and watch that 97 game, there's a play in the middle of the fourth quarter. I thought I was dying while walking. Like that, that's how tired I was during that game because. I mean, you, you, you're playing an up-tempo offense and you're chasing these little guys around, man. It, it was unreal. Oh, definitely unreal, bro. And I tell people all the time, the biggest memory that I have playing at LSU is when you walk out of the locker room, you hype, like you ready to go get it. And then y'all, y'all punk asses, y'all don't put that big ass tiger right there beside the locker room. Yeah. And so I'm in my mindset and I see that tiger, I'm like, Shit. <laughs> I'm, I'm, I'm walking all the way around here, bro. No, no. Big hey, intimidation factor. Imagine coming from New York and then coming down to the SEC and, and seeing these types of antics. Like, you pull up the LSU, they they rocking your bus and hitting your bus and everything. Yeah. And then, you know, Coach no man, he used to tell you, our, our O-line coach, we saw y'all in, um, I want to say, 97 and 98 while you were there, but scouting report the whole week. Man, I tell you what. You better get out your ass. That damn Booger McFarlane, he's going to eat you for fucking lunch. You keep on slapping it around here. <laughs> so it was some great battles, man. And I tell you what, you were definitely the truth out there, man. You did your thing, man, for real. Yeah, that was fun, man. We always think about that and and, and think about those times, uh, especially when, you know, you reminisce and, and you look back. And I tell my kids all the time, because my kids are 12 and 9, so – I had them right after I got done playing. So when I started talking about me playing, they're like, you play? So every now and then I had to pull out some footage and show them. Yeah. And some of it's LSU when I still had hair. And my, my son looked at a picture and he's like, hey, where did all your hair go? And I'm like, you notice about this picture, man? So it's, it's always fun to reminisce and go back and look at those games, man, especially now. And then to fast forward and just to see – how dominant LSU has become again, Spikes, how we are the national champion, and you know, we're going to try to repeat again this year, my man. Well, I, I, I want to see that. You ain't got Joe Burrows. <laughs> and, and Joe Burrows, I tell you, like, I really, you know, speaking of Joe Burrows, though, you know, a lot of reports coming out of camp in Cincinnati, they right. saying, you know what, he's fitting right into alignment. He's keeping the flow going, energizing a lot of guys because he has a lot of toys to play with. Mm-hmm. How do you see him progressing this year with the Cincinnati Bengals? So as long as they make make the game plan for him, I think he's going to be fine. People people forget when Joe was there his junior year, Joe kind of struggled a little bit. And what allowed Joe to flourish was uh, Brady came in. Joe Brady came in and he made the offense very simple. 
So instead of coming out in two tight ends, two backs, he opened the field up, 11 personnel, which is one tight end, uh, one running back, three wide receivers, and he opened the field up. And Joe is so smart, and, and his, his ability to read defenses and pull the trigger is so fast that when you open the field up and when you open kind of open the uh, test up where he can see all the answers and see where they're coming from, he was able to process information really quickly. So if Cincinnati will do that, don't come out in this in this traditional fullback, two tight end. Now, open the game up for Joe Burrow. Allow him to see what's coming. If they do that, I mean, A.J. Green is still really, uh, really good. You got Boyd. You got Giovanni Bernard. So they have some weapons in Cincinnati. He's going to play 10 or 12 years in Cincinnati, man. Joe is that good. Uh, people forget. Think about this, Spikes. He's not just your typical rookie. He's 23 years old. True. So he's really like really what like a second or third year player from an age standpoint. So his maturity level is off the charts. I think he's going to do well. They got to protect him in Cincinnati though, two times. So like yeah. Jonah Williams, the kid from Alabama, uh, I think he's going to be the left tackle. So he's going to have to protect him and come back from that torn labrum. If they'll do that, Joe's going to make some mistakes, but he will he will definitely look like the number one overall pick. And you talked about the SEC LSU hopefully making another run for a national championship in your eyes. But um, SEC is still playing. Uh, I think Big 12 is as well. Big 10 is not. Pac-12, no full sports. What is college football, what is the landscape going to look like this year when you can't even really crown a national championship without everybody playing? Oh, well, they're going to crown one. It, it may not be legitimate in some people's eyes, but as, as long as, you know, the powers that be, SEC, uh, ACC with Dabo, uh, mm -hmm. The Big 12 with Oklahoma, you know, some people would say the Big 10 and the Pac-12 probably only had two teams that could contend when you talk about Ohio State and Oregon. Uh, with all that being said, though, if those three Power Five conferences, SEC, ACC, and Big 12, if they play, they're going to crown a champion. Now, you may not look at it as a national champion. You may look at, look at it with an asterisk. But if they play those three conferences, I think they're going to play um, – I think eventually um, it may have to stop just because of what happens with COVID and all the liability lawsuits that could be looming if some of these kids get sick and, and, and they start thinking about what may happen five, 10 years down the road. But I think they're going to play and, and, and it's going to look different and feel different because of no fans in the stands. And we, we got to remember, college football is, is about pageantry and tradition and the band on the field and the cheerleaders and the student section. And so college kids 17 to 21 are so influenced by other things other than football at the game. Professional football, I don't think we're going to even really notice the fact that there are no fans there. College football is going to look and feel differently. And so whichever team or whichever coach can convince their team and motivate them to play week in and week out, I think they're going to have a real, real huge advantage as far as playing these games with no fans. Yeah, and what complicates everything is exactly like you said, COVID-19. And yeah. uh, you, I, I remember seeing you said this earlier. If your son, you have a son, and if your son was of age, you would not allow him to play. Uh, now months has been passed by. We've seen more on detail as far as the records, as far as health records, how people are recovering. Seems to me, I don't know the exact number, not as many people are dying but now i i pose that same question to you knowing what you know now would you still not allow your your son to play if he was of age no i i, I, I would let him play obviously once you get 
to a certain age. Uh, I mean, if he's if he's a twenty year old junior or senior, I mean, you're almost in grown man territory here. So I kind of would have to let him, you know, lean towards his own decision. But if I got a 17, 18 year old freshman, no, nah, we're not playing because here's my thing: How can you convince me that it's safe enough for my son to go out and play football, but the students can't be on campus? It's not safe enough for them. And football, I get it from a social distancing standpoint, it's tough. And everyone looks at what the NFL is doing. And the NFL is pulling this off right now so far because everyone is in that training camp mentality. So it's go to the hotel, uh, eat, sleep, think football, go to the facility, play football. Like Nobody is thinking about anything but football right now. What's going to happen when, when quote-unquote training camp breaks and you get a regular season mentality where – you're only spending, I mean, if you're off on Tuesday, you spend, what, 8 to 5 on Wednesday, 8 to 5 Thursday, Friday is a half day, Saturday, depending on if you're traveling or not, you got a lot of free time. So when those guys get into regular season mode, I think that's when the NFL is really going to struggle when it comes to this COVID, man. And so people look and say, well, the NFL is pulling this off. How come college football can't pull it off? They can, but here's the key with college football. College football has made a big um, a big stink about amateurism and these kids are student athletes and they're amateurs. So it's impossible for you to create a bubble like the NFL is going to try to do in college because you don't want to pay these guys. And so people have to look at the ramifications long term as far as student athletes. Uh, are you going to treat them like professionals? Because if you're going to treat them like pros and at some point you got to start paying them. And I think that's the biggest thing behind the scenes. Like once you take the next level behind COVID-19 and what's happening, I think amateurism, name, image, and likeness, and paying the players are ultimately what the NFL, not the NFL, but the NCAA is really trying to kind of um, keep in the box as much as they can. And they are willing to sacrifice an entire season for that because they know that there's a way to do this. Okay, put them in a bubble, uh, go to the dorm, come to the facility, we're just going to play ball. But they can't do that while honestly saying that these kids are just amateurs and student athletes. So it's going to be interesting to see when when a, a school or a, a position group at a major school has a huge outbreak, what they do and how they how they protect these kids, because ultimately the Big Ten and the Pac-12 are not playing football because of long term liability and they're afraid of lawsuits. And you hit it right on the head, man. When when the bubble, when the training camp is over, I should say, it's no longer a bubble-like uh, atmosphere. And Keo and I talked about this. What happens when you week seven, the season is going on, uh, things are lightening up. You see, it, you know what? We're on a losing streak. We want to have a little bit of fun in terms of the professional athletes. You know, the old linemen. Yeah. We were done on Friday, like I said, the early day. We was running down to Mons Venus when we was in Tampa. You know what I'm saying? So if you were in the league right now, uh, would you play? this season with COVID-19 and everything else going on? Yeah, so professional football is different because I, I got a union that's negotiating on my behalf. I got a contract that's hopefully paying me millions of dollars. And so I have an incentive to go out and play. Um, and we also have to realize that in pro football, you know, you only got a certain amount of time. Like the average career is three and a half years. If you're lucky, you probably play seven or eight. If you play a position that you don't get hit a lot, like a quarterback or a kicker opponent, you can play 10, 12, 13 years, but on average, you're not playing a long time. So are you willing to sacrifice several million dollars just to kind of sit back and and just say, I'm going to be super cautious? Um, 
it, it just depends on your risk tolerance, man. Like during this whole COVID nineteen, when when nobody when nobody really knew what was happening in March, I think everybody was locked up in the house. And the more we learned, and the more we saw how things uh, progressed, I think it was all about risk tolerance at that point. Uh, like I, I, I've gone out, I've been playing golf ever since ever since the pandemic started because golf is a is is a sport or a place where you can social distance. Uh, you're only playing with three or four people and you, you're outside where it's 100 degrees down here in Florida. So depending on your lifestyle and your risk tolerance, I think would ultimately lead to your decision whether you would go out and play. Some people have been locked in their house really since March. Um, but I know myself, I'm a country boy, I'm an outdoors guy, I can't be locked in the house forever. And knowing the amount of money that I was able to make during my career, and my career was one of the longer ones at nine years. I don't know if I could sacrifice that amount of money um, and not play, especially with the level of, of, of precaution that's being taken um, in, in, you know, in the NFL. And I'm, I'm a pro. I'm a grown man. I can make that decision. My union can help make that decision. I think that's the difference between college football, pro football. College football, somebody's got to speak for you. Pro football, I'm a grown-ass man. I can speak for my own self, so I would be willing to take take that risk. But we've seen 50 or 60 guys already in the NFL opt out, and, and I get it. Their risk tolerance is not as high as probably mine would have been. Yeah, and, like, it's a great point, especially when we talk about the COVID. Like, recently you see a couple of teams, Chicago, I think about Minnesota. They got a bunch of scares from – uh, false, inaccurate tests when it came to testing positive for COVID. Now, it changed the dynamic for them that day and then the next day because they had to go back and do contact tracing, number one. Then they had to go ahead and say, you know what, since this guy can't be a part of it, now I have to move certain guys up, which they are already limited in numbers compared to years past from guys coming to training camp. Do you see this? To me, I see that as the norm as far as getting ready to prepare, because it's going to throw a monkey wrench in everything, especially, like you said, when the season gets going. Do you see this as a good scare for the teams to be able to kind of exercise their rights as far as let me check and see what my options are, even though some of the guys were not affected? Yeah, to me, it, it was it was a really, really uh, – it was a blessing in disguise for the NFL because now they know – like if I'm the NFL and I'm Troy Vincent, I tell all these labs, hey – if you get a positive positive test before we ever report it, let's run it again. Let's double check it. So now I know that if I report a positive test, it's been checked two or three times. I think it's a blessing in disguise. That way you won't have a situation where, I mean, if you look at all the false positives we had, I mean, there were, what, 10 teams affected. Imagine getting uh, a, a phone call on a Sunday morning and you got 10 teams that have to either delay or postpone their game a day. Like that that throws the NFL into a state of flux. So I think it's a blessing in disguise how it happened. Uh, and now going forward, I don't expect us to see any more false positive. I think what the NFL is going to do, as I said, is they're going to, if they get a positive test, they're automatically going to double check it and triple check it to make sure that way by the time the team gets it, they can already say yes, it's a positive. We've already double checked it and you are positive and you have to go and sit out or do whatever their protocols are. You hear the cliche all the time. Offense sells tickets. Defense wins championships. I didn't really 
believe that it's my third year in the league when I actually came in, uh, to the Bucks, where you were already there. And I, I stepped on the field. I'm like, you got Derrick Brooks, John Lynch. But up front, every day I had to block you, Warren Sapp, Gray Spires, Simeon Rice. But on your Super Bowl run, you also went to the Colts. You had Raheem Brock, Robert Mathis, Dwight Freeney. Great defensive lines. Tell me which defensive line was better and what was the difference between those two championship runs? Um, the one in Tampa was better. Uh, I mean, uh, and, and here's the reason I say that. Um, I think of my era, I, I think Warren Sapp is, is one of the most dominant players of, of, of the era I played in. And Simeon Rice is, is, is you know, Simeon Rice being being kind of robbing the Saps Batman is, is probably one of the more dynamic duos the NFL has ever seen. You know, you look at what we had in Indianapolis, we were edge driven. So it was Mathis, it was Freeney. And, you know, Freeney and Mathis are both going to be kind of borderline Hall of Famers. Uh, Robert Mathis had some years, man, where he had, what, 21 sacks, 13 forced fumbles. Like, I mean, the numbers are silly. But I would give the edge to my team in Tampa just because I think Warren Sapp is that good. Like, Sapp's best, in my mind, is better than Freeney's best. And although I think Freeney's best and Mathis' best are better than Simeon Rice. Like, mm -hmm. th like those guys, it's like six in one hand and a half a dozen in another one when it comes to those defensive ends, man. But there haven't been many players in this league like Warren Sapp. Uh, people look at Aaron Donald now, and I tell people all the time, Aaron Donald is the best defensive player in this game, and I don't know if he is as good as Warren Sapp when I saw him at his best. Um, Sapp was bigger. Sapp was 6'2", 300. Aaron Donald on a great day is 6'1", 285. Uh, super quick, great pass rusher. Um, I want to see where he see where he winds up. You know, as far as sack numbers and, and impact, uh, he's won defensive player of the year a couple of times. Probably probably should have won it two more. But when you just look at how games are affected, man, and, and maybe I'm partial. I'm partial to Sapp just because I played with him. Um, but I would give the edge to to my Buccaneer team. Yeah, you mentioned Aaron Donald now, bro. He, to me, he's like one of those generational talents that come through. The more and more I continue to watch him. Uh, simply just because of what you just said. You look at his stature, 6'1", 285, and this dude is beasting people like he's 300-plus pounds out there. Yeah. Uh, you break down the game. You see a lot of defensive linemen across the board. Who would you say would be your top five defensive linemen, whether or not if it's interior or edge rushers, that are completely dominant in today's game? Well, I think you got to stop and start with Aaron Donald. To me, he's the he's the premier guy in our game um, as far as the defensive lineman, period. Uh, I would then go to Miles Garrett. I, I think the sky's the limit. I mean, you talk about him at, at 275 and with the bend and the explosiveness that he has, um, I would probably – then I would, I would move toward Chris Jones – uh, in, in Kansas City, uh, I mean he's phenomenal. Uh, just just the way he plays. Uh, Von Miller being an edge guy. I know he's listed as a linebacker, but you just start talking about an edge guy, a guy that can dominate the game. Um, and then I would probably just kind of going through. Um, I would probably go Nick Bosa, man. Like 
I watched Nick Bosa play, and I realized that the kid was only a rookie, man. But my goodness, uh, just to see how fundamentally and technically sound he was. Um, and I realized, you know, I, I may be leaving out Fletcher Cox, somebody, Grady Jarrett, and Khalil Mack. Khalil Mack, listen, Khalil Mack, if you give me the Khalil Mack two years ago, then we can talk. The Khalil Mack that I saw last year wasn't as good. Okay, I'm talking about guys that was was absolutely dominant in how they played, man. When you look at um when you look at Aaron Donald, you look at Miles Garrett, you look at Von Miller, you look at Chris Jones, man, just how, how those guys played, man, absolutely outstanding. So those that would be my list. And arguably Nick Bosa, Nick Bosa did it. He did it as a rookie. So you think about that as a rookie, how good he was. If you gave me stock in one player over the next five years in the NFL, I'm not so sure I'm not buying Nick Bosa stock over over anybody um, except obviously a quarterback. Any non-quarterback, I'm pretty sure I'm taking Nick Bosa. Like that dude is unreal, man. So you think for his sophomore season, he's going to come back and be that dominant because, you know, now it's not like he was a secret last year. I would probably right. say the first five games. But as teams start to compile more film on uh, it, game plan like, like they on game plan. So you still think he will still be as dominant? Yeah. And here's here's the reason why it's because it's not just him. You know, sometimes when you're a lone wolf, they can kind of, you know, game plan for you. But if you look at what. The 49ers got, man. The 49ers drafted the kid out of South Carolina. Um, man, what's the kid? The, the big defensive tackle out of um, – Was it Kenlaw, I think? Yeah, Javon Kenlaw. So yeah. Kenlaw inside takes the place of Buckner. You got Eric Armstead. You got D. Ford on the opposite side. So if you say, okay, I'm going to just one-on-one -on -one all of those just to double Bosa, okay, I'm sure the 49ers be like, okay, cool. One-on-one -on -one with Kenlaw, one-on-one -on -one with D. Ford one-on-one -on -one with Eric Armstead. And Armstead quietly was a better pass rusher than Buckner last year. So if you're John Lynch and you're Kyle Shanahan and you're the 49ers, I'm pretty sure Bosa would take the double team, but are you willing to live with one-on-one -on -one with the rest of those guys? So anytime you got three or four guys up there, man, it makes it tougher. Bosa is going to get his just because he's that good. It wouldn't surprise me if he's, he's 12 to 15 sacks again this year. Um, I, I just think he's that good. Go back and watch, go back and watch the game against Carolina last year. It, it's one of the, it, it's one of the more fundamentally, technically dominant games I've ever seen the defensive end play. Mm. Man, obviously you have an incredible knowledge of the game, man. You successively have transitioned into broadcasting. What are some nuggets, some some gems you can give some of the aspiring young players that get out of the league and want to get into broadcasting as well? Man, just work your craft. Like, I started out doing local radio, man. As Spikes can tell you, you know, um, you know, oftentimes, man, you know, we think we got this thing figured out. And like, man, I'm good. I'm, I, I've been, I know how to do this. And what you realize is that, you know, there's an old, I, I, get, I forget who said it, but it talks about in order to perfect your craft, it takes 10,000 hours of doing it. Well, you got to get reps and reps and reps. And man, I did afternoon drive radio three to seven, man, in Tampa talking. Uh, Lightning Hockey, Tampa Bay Ray Baseball, Buccaneer Football. And I did that for two years, man. Four hours a day, uh, 20 hours a week for two years. And it, it, it shows you, uh, A, it gives you a, a, a lot of respect for the people that do it. But it, it also shows you and allows you to just talk. That way you become comfortable doing the one thing that's necessity 
that they necessity to do in this business, which is just talk and, and just continue to get reps and reps and reps. And when you get your opportunity to talk about whatever news, sports, man, just get in front of people because the hardest part of being on TV is just a comfort level. Like, I think we all can have conversations. We all have sat around with our boys and chopped it up and talk about sports and, man, there's no way Michael Jordan is better than Kobe. And, man, are you kidding me? Like, we all have done that whole thing where we sit around and chop it up. So now how can you make that transition of taking that conversation and taking it from the front porch into the studio? And when you get in front of the studio with a tie on and, you know, you got sweat running down your back and that camera pops on, you got to be able to articulate your message and, and do it with a smile on your face. And those things only come with a comfort level, which comes with repetition. You talk about the studio, too. For you, you've had a taste of both. You've, you've been on the field broadcasting games, sidelines, as well as the studio. So what's, what's your preference? You know, it's, it, 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 it's, it's one of those things that, like, games are really about the game you get. So you can be the greatest uh, analyst ever, but if you get Jaguars, Bengals, week 12, there's really nothing you can do with that. <laughs> like, there's nothing. I don't care what Man. I mean, you can have the greatest breakdown ever. There's nothing you can do with that. So w when you're a game analyst, you're really dependent upon the game to help you out. When you're in the studio, man, it's on you and your crew. Yeah. Like, y'all can, can make the conversation flow. Y'all can talk about whatever. So I'm always partial to being in the studio because I can control that. But there's there's really nothing like being on a on a primetime game. I, I tell people this, and you guys, it's been a long time since y'all ran out of a tunnel. Remember that feeling that you got when you ran out of the tunnel and you were at Ole Miss and you were at Auburn, it's a big game, and you run out the tunnel in the NFL, and man, that feeling you had, like everybody's here to see me play, that's the feeling you get when you get a big game and you're you're an analyst because you know whether it's 3 million or 15 million people, there's a lot of people tuned in to watch this game and really to hang out with you. Cause that's all like as an analyst, all you're doing is trying to keep people company while they watch the game. Cause the game is what it is. You just hope you get a good one. And so um, there's no better feeling than that. But if you gave me a choice, uh, all things being equal, great game, uh, two playoff teams or being in the studio, it's really a flip of the coin. Uh, I feel you, bro. Real, real quick, I'm going to tell you why I laughed so hard at that because Tequila and I actually broadcasted um, college football over the past what, three or four years, and it were games that we were literally texting each other during the broadcast. And I'm like, he's like, how you doing over there, champ? I'm like, man, this game's so damn boring. We blowing them out. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? Something like that. And Spike's like, exactly. hang in there. Or vice versa. He's like, man, like you in the booth, you actually have – I call that you have your own touchdowns where you predict the play and it goes just as you analyze, you know, as you yeah. broke it down and they score something, a big play, and you just sit there in the booth like, got it. You know what I mean? So, yeah, yeah. I definitely feel your vibe on that, man. Hey, Bull, before we let you go, man, I know you be watching that NBA, bro. Like, what's your analysis? Who you think going to bring it home? Wow. Uh, I think it's out of the Clippers and the Lakers. Um, it just depends on which Paul George shows up. If, if, if Paul George is motivated, I think the Clippers have more options to beat you than the Lakers do. Paul George, Kawhi Leonard, Beverly, um, you know, the Morris kid, uh, Harrell, uh, Lou Will. Uh, it, they got so many options to get a bucket. If you look at the Lakers, man, and it's AD 
and it's LeBron. What you gonna get out of KCP Kuzma? Depending on w what color his hair been dyed that week, whether he gonna show up. Um, you know, Danny Green. I, I mean, Danny Green. I, I like him, but you can't depend on him. So, like, if you told me I need to bet a, an amount of money that mattered to me, who would I bet it on? I bet on the Clippers. Now, I'm a Laker fan. Full disclosure. I want LeBron to win, but man, the Clippers got a lot of answers, man, and they can beat you in a multitude of ways. Yeah, they do have a lot of answers. And uh, Doc Rivers, one guy who I really appreciate. I love the maturity development of the approach of how he takes and be able to raise guys, even in conflicting situations recently of a black man. Jacob Blake in Wisconsin happened, wrongfully shot seven times in the back. And somebody asked Coach Doc Rivers after the game, you know, his thoughts on it. And you know, the thing that really stuck out to me was he came back and he was like, all you have, all you hear is Donald Trump and all of them talking about we're the ones talking about fear. We're the ones that's getting killed. We're the ones that's getting shot. Yeah. It's amazing why we keep loving this country and this country does not love us back. End quote from Doc Rivers. So when you look at this and a lot of people want to put athletes and tr they try to separate the political side and sports side basically saying you just stick to know what you're doing which is playing football or basketball and you let the politicians handle that what is your take on that where we are in this current climate as far as the role of the athlete today and then just your personal take well i, I think the role of the athlete simply has to continue to be what's on your heart some athletes have a voice and they want to use it, and, and I empower them to go ahead and use their voice, uh, like we've seen Colin Kaepernick, LeBron James, uh, and, and, and guys um, of that same vein. Um, the way I look at it, man, it, it's like, you know, being black in America is, is, not, a, is not a choice. Um, that's who I am. That's how uh, I came into this world. And it, it's a it's a fact that I have to live with on a daily basis. And, you know, when you're a non-African American in this country, you have a choice of a lot of things and how you react, how you respond, how you deal with people, how you um, what side are you going to be on when it comes to uh, issues of, of, of social injustice and police brutality uh, and racism? And there are those that choose to be on the right side and there are those that choose to walk alongside the same people who are shooting unarmed black men in the back, who are um, killing our black men at an alarming rate. And I just think that the more we talk about it, the more we bring awareness to it, hopefully those people will make the right choice. But I think what we're seeing is that's not happening. And every time that an unarmed black man is killed, it's illuminated. And I, I think, I mean, you just get tired, you know, um, because you wonder, when is it going to be your turn? When is it going to be your turn where, you know, you, you are 15, 20 years removed from playing, nobody knows who you are, and you just happen to be driving down the street, and you get pulled over, and nobody knows who you are. They just see black man larger bill, whatever reason, and that officer says, okay, today is your day. 
And, and I think that's the thing that when you look at Doc Rivers and how emotional he got, when you look at some of the people that have talked and spoke on this subject, um, man, there's a fear factor, man, that, that, that you wonder, when is it going to be me? When is it going to be me? Because we've all seen it. Uh, we all haven't experienced it, but we've all seen it. And I think the fear of the unknown, of not knowing, you know, one day if it could be you, could be your son, could be your uh, nephew, um, like those things are real, man. So, you know, I'm tired of talking about it. Um, I, I just, I, I just know that the only way to keep bringing awareness to it is to talk about it. But I think I'm like every black man in the country, man. Like we, we tired of seeing the same things and tired of talking about the same issue. Because you can say black lives matter and somebody will come back. Well, all lives matter. And here's what I say to that. Yeah, all lives matter, but all lives aren't the ones that's being killed at an alarming rate. Because I can show you a video of an officer having a gun on somebody and a white man is moving toward the officer and the officer is restraining himself. You got a black man walking away and the officer putting seven bullets in the back. I, I mean... We got video now. You know, years ago, we didn't have video. All we had was, here's what happened. It was he said, he said. Now we got video, and it's like, okay, so y'all got video. It doesn't matter. It, it, we still going to do it. So it, it's just a tiring feeling, and hopefully at some point, uh, I, my kid, who's nine years old, uh, won't have to deal with it. Hopefully your children won't have to deal with it, but I got a feeling it's going to be around for a long time. All right, Boog, you've been in the trenches for years, man, doing your thing on the broadcasting side right now. I always rag on Spikes about his fingers, man. He says he feels like he could have played in the trenches with his hands, man. Spikes, <laughs> shoot him. Look, look, look at that. You, look at that. that pink, the both pinkies, they can't even go straight. That's well, the real like, but, see, but see, these are real trenches. Like, Ooh. yours are, like, you know, yours are fake trench fingers. Oh, my Lord. Those are, you know, like, West Side for real. <laughs> <laughs> Mine ain't that bad, man. I tell you what, man. I, the first day, it, first time in college, somebody had uh, dislocated my finger. I was like, no, no, no. I take mine up like this the rest of my career, man. I couldn't do it, man. <laughs> no, nah, I, I didn't. You know what? Mine were just dislocated. I just didn't take the time to... Um, to splint them, like I got them reset, but I didn't take care of them, and this events do what they look like. As long as I can hold a golf club, they don't bother me. <laughs> Already, amen to that, bro. Listen, sure. bro. Hey, we appreciate the time, my dog, man. Thank you for joining us, and uh, we'll definitely check back in later in the season. Anytime, man. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode of the Behind the Mask podcast with two-time Super Bowl champ Booger McFarlane. Make sure you join us weekly on YouTube and anywhere you get your podcast content. Make sure you subscribe also. And remember, on the Behind the Mask podcast, there's only one rule. There are no rules. Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube.